in the wee hours of the morning, July 11th, 1886. 1886. So let's, this is putting us about 15 years after the Chicago fire. So just kind of place yourself here. The little steamboat, the Rayutan, was traveling Lake Michigan from Milwaukee to Chicago when it was caught in the tumbling waves of a rainstorm. The tenacious captain, George Cap Streeter, kept his vessel pointed southbound, and the Rayutan smacked into a sandbar about 400 feet offshore of what is now Superior Street. A bit south of the water tower along Chicago's north side. Back then, the area was a long sandbar that the city continued to fill with sand, deepening the shoreline between the water and the mansions owned by some of Chicago's most elite. Cap, Cap Streeter, decided to stay. He claimed the area as the independent U.S. District of Lake Michigan. He filled the sandbar area with rubble and secured a title, then sold lots and collected taxes on them. Right out there in Lake Michigan, kind of like where we would know Oak Street Beach to be. Behind that, back then, there was no land. That was the lake. Well, right there was where Cap Streeter was. Streeter converted his land-bound steamboat into his stronghold. The top half was his home, and the bottom half served as his war room. As Chicago experienced a building boom after the 1871 fire, the land surrounding the boat had become valuable, and he claimed it as his domain. Cap's legal standing depended on an 1821 government survey that deemed his 186-acre U.S. District of Lake Michigan to be outside of Chicago and Illinois boundaries. He was in the lake. <laughs> Cap lorded over and protected his shanty kingdom, defending it against police with pans of boiling water thrown by his wife, and musket-fired birdshot, securing it until his death, though his third wife could not claim his property upon his death because he had not legally divorced his first wife. And thus is why that neighborhood of Chicago is called Streeterville. Interesting Chicago facts. Does it sound like you? Claiming your own small kingdom wherever the steamboat of your life has been wedged? It sounds like me. Sometimes, in some ways. See, you and I, we can all lay claim to desiring the kingdom of self-sovereignty our own U.S. district of me. Listen, just let me do me. I know what's best for me. I've got this shanty kingdom. 
which might sound great. You may have played the game King Domino. If you have, you're like your own little king or queen in this castle and you build around. But the thing about a self-ruled kingdom is that you have to rule yourself. And you have to rule yourself by yourself. And you and I know an honest assessment of our own life experience is that we cannot rule ourselves. We're lousy kings, lousy queens of our own lives. We fail ourselves. We don't provide what we actually desire and need. And then when we fail ourselves, what are we left with? Fears. Fears that our shanty kingdom will fail. That our sham sovereignty will be exposed. But what do we do? As self-made kings and queens, we usually double down. Try to build up our walls stronger. But as self-made kings and queens, we only have ourselves to plead to and we're still unable to meet our own needs or calm our own fears. Our kingdoms tremble whenever the, the winds of life blow. We need a greater king who is able to meet our deepest needs and calm our deepest fears. Last week, a small nation demanded a king. John preached about it in 1 Samuel 8. And despite Samuel's warnings to them that a king would just take, 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 Israel responded with ancient echoes of the modern national anthem of our own self-sovereignty. Just let us do us. We want a king! And so the Lord tells Samuel at the end of chapter 8, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. And so we're left waiting to see how will God make them a king? Who will God give them as a king? Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us through this lengthy passage, but a powerful story of your continuing sovereignty, even amidst the rebellion of the human heart, sometimes collectivized. So Lord, help us to see you rightly today. Help us to see ourselves more rightly today as well. Please visit us with your grace and open up your word to us. For the sake of your name, amen. So yes, four chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 9. There are three movements to this story, which will simplify how we go through it. The first movement is this, it's the rise of Saul as king. There's a climax which I'll tell you about when we get there. And then there's a falling action, the farewell of Samuel. So let's begin with the rise of Saul. I'll primarily try to tell this story as much as possible. 
But we're going to stop in a couple of important places. Number one, we're going to stop when we hear the word of the Lord, usually through Samuel, because that is critical in 1 Samuel. As John mentioned again last week, the word of the Lord was rare in Israel at this time. But it became much less rare once God called Samuel to be a judge, a prophet, and a priest. So we will stop when we hear the word of the Lord. And we will also stop when we can get a bit of a glimpse of Saul's posture toward the word of the Lord. Hopefully those two things will help us as we work through the text. If you look at the beginning of chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Wow. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So not only was the dude handsome, beyond all compare, because he was tall, everybody could say, wow, I could see him from everywhere. That guy's handsome. <laughs> and he was also rich. He had a wealthy pedigree and impressive physicality. Just what Israel would want in a king. However, we are going to encounter warning signs. Warning signs that Saul might not be who Israel really needed. Warning sign number one is this. Saul is transactional with the word of the Lord. He's a pragmatist. Saul is transactional with the word of the Lord. Continuing in this text here, I'm not going to read it here, but Saul is sent out as a young man to look for his dad's lost donkeys. And he and a servant search near and far, can't find the donkeys. Finally, Saul is like, my dad's going to start worrying about me. We better go home. But the servant suggests visiting a seer. Look with me at verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But the servant said to Saul, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. These guys were hungry. And there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. 
So they went to the city where the man of God was. It's interesting, that little parenthetical statement there, because it gives us a sense that this was written later on in history. They're looking back at this story to also learn as we are seeking to learn. They know the end of Saul's story, and they're trying to find the beginning of that story. So why does this seem to point to Saul as being transactional with the word of the Lord? Well, first of all, Saul did not inquire of the Lord. At least the text does not tell us that he did. He's looking and looking and looking, going near and far for these donkeys, and he can't find them, but he does not inquire of the Lord. This might just be ignorant. Maybe he just doesn't know. But this is a man of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He should know of Yahweh. Perhaps it was fleshly. God's never answered my prayers before. Why would he start now? God and us aren't, God and myself, we're not really like that. Don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we do know that Saul did not inquire of the Lord, as far as we can tell. Second of all, Saul had nothing to give. He says that about them. About them. Saul assumed that a token was required in order to receive wisdom from the man of God. And then the servant says, we need to go to him so he can tell us our way. Do you see the, the transactional nature here? They are saying, okay, now, now we know there's this man of God. Maybe he can tell us what we need to know so we can get back what we need. There's no apparent desire for the word itself. No desire for the word because it is the word of the Lord. But only desire to hear from the seer because Saul had a problem and he needed it to be fixed. So they go up to the city and they find the seer on his way to sacrifice. There's some interaction with a few different people. But let's go to verse 15, because here is where the word of the Lord comes in. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul... The Lord told Samuel, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? And Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning, I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Let me repeat that again. Because Samuel goes there really quickly here. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Basically, who is all Israel going to give their desirable stuff to? 
Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul likely stammered and answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat. Because it was appointed, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place in the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. The Lord had revealed to Samuel that Saul is who, would, who God was going to make king. But then Saul, who's been looking for donkeys, gets so much more than he was looking for. Samuel says, your donkeys are fine. But then he gives him the promise to be king. All this desirable in Israel will be for you and your father's house. Then he's given the priest's portion that has been set aside should have gone to Samuel, Samuel gives it to Saul. Promise to be king, given the priest portion, and then he is given the word of the prophet. Let's look at verse at chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you, that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city... You will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait, Saul, until I come to you, 
and show you what you shall do. So Samuel here anoints Saul as prince. Did you get that language? Not king, but prince. An under ruler, a steward of Israel. That Saul would oversee and care for God's heritage. This was not his heritage. This was God's. God's people, God's kingdom. So he's anointed as a prince. A prince who will, it's qualified like this, will save Israel from their enemies. That was the reason that he was going to be in this position. And then Samuel says, there will be these signs that will tell you to believe and understand that the word of the Lord is true. Which makes sense, right? I mean, if, if you're walking downtown, maybe in Streeterville, and someone who seems pretty wise, maybe holy, comes up to you and says, guess what, Ben? You're going to be the next king of Great Britain. Charles, eh. Ben, you're in line. Be like, means of escaping this conversation. But then he says, and here's signs that it's going to happen. And these signs are going to happen today. And those signs start to happen today. All of a sudden you begin to think, maybe this guy was right. Well, that's what Samuel was helping Saul with. Sure enough, the donkeys are found. Sure enough, he meets three men going to Bethel. The house of God is what Bethel means. The house of God. They're going up to this place and they provide Saul with food and with drink. Remember, he and his servant were empty-handed at this point. He says, you're going to go to Gibeah, Elohim, the hill of God. This was Saul's hometown. You're going to go back home. And in your hometown, as you know, Saul, there's a Philistine garrison there. You're going to meet some prophets. And the spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you. You're going to prophesy with these prophets and be turned into another man. Do what your hands find to do. God is with you, Saul. What is expected of Saul here, especially in this last portion when he goes back to his hometown? What is expected, though not stated explicitly, is that Saul is going to go back and take care of business with this Philistine garrison. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Back in the book of Judges, chapters 14 and 15, this is said three times of who? Samson. So if you're thinking, one guy, even if he is handsome and tall, probably can't take out a full garrison, Samson did that repeatedly when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. When Samuel tells Saul, God is with you, he's likely referring back to Judges 6.12, when there was another man of little reputation named Gideon, when the angel says to Gideon, the Lord is with you in order to defeat Midian. 
when he says, what your hand finds to do, this happens a little after the Gideon story. There's a guy named Abimelech that basically killed all of Gideon's sons. And then somebody gives Abimelech this instruction, do what your hand finds to do. And it's a euphemism for fight. And then Saul is to go to Gilgal before Samuel. So Saul arrives home in Gibeah. The Spirit of God does, does rush on him. He meets a group of prophets, and he prophesies. And the people in his hometown are like, what has come over the son of Kish? He was just seeking donkeys. And now he's prophesying with the prophets? Which leads us to warning sign number two. Paul is tra Saul is transactional with the word of the Lord. Saul is also timid with the word of the Lord. Look at verse 14, chapter 10. After he finished prophesying, Saul's uncle said to Saul and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. This should remind us, after the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, when Samuel's a little guy, and the Lord tells him all that's going to happen to Eli and to his sons, then he wakes up and Eli says, tell me everything he said. What did Samuel do? Remember? Somebody say? He said everything that he said, even as a little guy, to his elder. So now we have little guy in his own eyes, Saul, speaking to his elder uncle, likely Abner, who would later become the commander of his army. And Saul's uncle says, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, period. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Saul is timid with the word of the Lord. He holds back the fullness of the word of God as Samuel had identified it and does not tell Abner everything. Let's continue on. Verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. So all the people of Israel are gathering. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. A little history lesson here. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. Keep that phrase in mind. Who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. 
Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the, of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, hmm, he could not be found. So now the people inquired of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? God, we asked for a king. You said you'd give us a king. We can't find our king, even though we know his name. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. You can imagine him coming out from the baggage, this man who was taller than all other Israelites. And he stood among the people, taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him? Do you see him? Do you really see him? Whom the Lord has chosen. Oh, you're right. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! As they saw how handsome and tall he was. Not only did Saul hold back the word from his uncle, he then hides in the luggage at his regal proclamation. See, Saul is timid with the word of the Lord. He disbelieves, even with all the signs, that the word of the Lord is actually true. That he actually was anointed as king. In chapter 15, Samuel is going to tell him, I know that you are little in your own eyes. Listen, when we are little in our own eyes, that's not a bad thing. Unless we don't go to the word of the Lord and understand his truth and promises. Because when we're little, it does give us a good vantage point of who is not little. But if we don't trust the one who is not little, we will continue to fear. We will continue to be timid with the truth that he has given us. Saul had an inferiority complex, not only toward himself, but really toward the word of the Lord. He did not trust that it was actually true. But nevertheless, Saul is proclaimed as king. Saul is transactional. He's timid. Warning sign number three, Saul tampers with the word of the Lord. Look a little bit ahead at chapter 11, verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. That verse says a lot. He did not complete the signs. He's at home plowing with his oxen. Where should he have been? Did you catch it earlier? He should have left home and gone to Gilgal and waited for Samuel. But even before that, when he was at home, what was he supposed to do? Prophesy, yes, 
But then, as the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him like Samson, as the Lord was with him like Gideon, he was supposed to take care of business at home. And eject the Philistines from the hill of God. Saul tampers with the word. He, he kind of like partially obeys. But we know even in like parent-child relationships, partial obedience is not actual obedience. Obey all the way, right away. Trust the word of the Lord. But listen, as we continue to work through our way through Saul's reign, we're going to see that failure to obey the word of the Lord completely will become Saul's calling card. He's transactional. He's timid. He tampers. And now we move to the climax the climax, Saul as Savior. Saul as Savior. Note, as we go through chapter 11, all the references to save or to salvation. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in his ears in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Final warning sign, number four. Saul threatens with the word of the Lord. He threatens with the word of the Lord. You can see even in this beginning reality of his reign, though he has not taken a throne, though he does not have a scepter, he's starting to feel a little bit of the mantle of leadership. And he hears the cry of the people. Why are they weeping? And his response was to rule with fear instead of with faith. And he ends up forming a fearful people. He ruled with fear instead of faith, and the people that came were afraid. 
that what happened to his oxen were going to happen, was going to happen to theirs as well. Notice how he links Samuel's name with his. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, saying, like, I, I've got the authority of the word of the Lord behind me. You better get over here so we can do this. True, the Spirit of, the God, of God rushed upon him. But it does not say that the Spirit of God rushed upon him to kill oxen and send them around the country and gather the people together. Again, the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him in the narrative of Judges into 1 Samuel is that he could take care of this even on his own in the Spirit. Let's continue to read verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad, of course. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? That had happened at the end of the last chapter. We kind of skipped over that. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, finally, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Did you notice save or salvation? Jabesh Gilead, there is no one to save us. Really? That was God's role. Stated repeatedly, I will be the one to save you. I have a track record of doing so. Cry out to me, not to anyone else. Then Saul says, you shall have salvation. Oh yeah? That's quite the promise. Who says? You're going to accomplish that salvation by manpower achieved through threat? Seems like that was his plan. And then he says, at Gilgal, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Which is true to what Samuel had told him. Through him, he would save Israel from their enemies. See, this four-chapter story is a story about saving. Who will save Israel by meeting their greatest need of salvation and calming their greatest life and death fears? It has all the elements of salvation by a judge from the book of Judges. Inferiority complex, spirit of the Lord comes upon him, great victory, except for two things. Back in Judges, God appointed judges. 
to rise, to accomplish specific rescues at certain times. But now Saul, as king, was on the throne for good. See, the people did not want temporary judgeship. They wanted permanent kingship. The people were entrusting him with their long-term security. In effect saying, Saul, be our permanent savior. If we don't have to fear, then we don't have to have faith. But here's another thing. The situation is also different from judges because God didn't need to appoint a judge to rescue Jabesh Gilead from Nahash because God had already appointed Samuel. Nahash was a test, the climax, because even though Saul had been declared king, would Israel call on the Lord? Would they seek out Samuel and say, don't cease to pray for us? We need to be saved, to be rescued. Nope. Instead, they bargained. Let's see if there's anybody to save us. Let's put the word out there and see what happens. See, Israel said they wanted a king like the nations, but what they really wanted was a king like themselves. And that's exactly what God gave them. They wanted to find salvation within themselves. There was a lot of Saul in Israel, which makes sense because Saul came from Israel. Israel throughout their history, in their posture towards the word of the Lord, had also been transactional, timid, tampering, and threatened. That was how they saw God in many instances. And so they trusted their own word, their own wisdom. Give us a king. To which we could ask the question, has God sent Saul? Absolutely. But not ultimately as a savior. Instead, as a judge. As judgment on Israel. He will prove to not be the Lord's prince a steward of God's heritage. He would not lead Israel to trust the Lord as a true shepherd king should. The man who God had sent to be Israel's salvation was Samuel. Israel had the one they needed, but they feared because his sons were bad. John mentioned that last week. Okay, yeah, not great. The lineup was not looking towards, give one of these guys the next priesthood or judgeship. Remember, everybody still had Eli and his sons in the back of their minds. But rather than saying, give us a king, what should have been their response? Lord, we cry out to you. We don't know who's going to be the next leader. 
we trust you. But they did not. Even though in the case of Israel, the Savior they needed was Samuel, who God had sent, now he is saying farewell in chapter 12. See, Samuel has been replaced. Samuel has been replaced. He won't go away. We're still going to see him some more in the book of 1 Samuel. But he knows that Israel no longer looks to the Lord to save them. Now, they look to Saul. Saul will now be the one who saves them. Saul will now be their judge. And so Samuel, knowing that his time is up, knowing that his people is hard, they have hardened their hearts to the word of the Lord, steps into the background. But Samuel was the one they needed. He was not a man of transaction, but a man of integrity. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Before we continue here, I want you to think about this. Saul, at the very best, was ignorant initially to the word of the Lord. Samuel only did not know the Lord when he was very young. And as soon as he heard the voice of the Lord call, he obeyed and obeyed and obeyed and obeyed. Samuel is a man who has been formed by obedience to the word of the Lord. And it shows in his integrity, and it shows that he's not a man of timidity, but of conviction. Verse 6, Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness. Who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt? Now therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you, do you forget, and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, Listen, Israel, this is not your first time in the merry-go-round of oppression. Not your first time in the merry-go-round of fear or anxiety or what are we going to do. When the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. 
but they forgot the Lord their God. And God sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and, he, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, this is present tense, just happened. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Listen, God saves sinners by the one he sends. It has always been his pattern and it continues until glory. God saves sinners by the one he sends. Samuel was a man of integrity and conviction, not of transaction or timidity. He was not a man who tampers, but he fully relayed the word of the Lord as a prophet is to do, as he just said about Nahash and Israel. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. You got to know who this guy is from. He's from the Lord. Reckon with that. And Samuel is not a man who threatens with fear. Though he is pretty ticked, he knows that the fear Reality will not ultimately unite people in a love for God who they have a slavish view of. We must serve him. No, he knows that the true fear of the Lord is true faith in the Lord who saves. Even for those who have sinned, by choosing Saul over God. If you're looking for mercy and grace, here it comes. Verse 14. The Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest 
today? You're about to go out and gather in the wheat. Well, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Their wheat harvest is about to be destroyed. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord indeed sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. a pretty sobering reality especially when you consider that not only is there a lot of Saul in Israel there's a lot of Saul in us finding salvation in our self-rule playing patty cake with the word of the Lord transactionally trying to get our problems fixed but not actually desiring the revelation of the God of the universe timidly disbelieving the Lord, listening to the echo of the serpent to Eve, did God really say you would die for your sin? So on the one hand, we, we disbelieve the reality of sin and judgment, but brothers and sisters on the other end, we oftentimes disbelieve the reality that we are actually saved. That we actually have been given the righteousness of Christ. That the Father sees us as perfect people in his Son. So we approach the word with timidity, not believing with confidence. And then we tamper with it. We, we, don't, we like this part, but we don't really like that part. We don't want to hear the whole counsel of God. Sometimes maybe we threaten with it or we're threatened by it as we allow fear to somehow overcome faith. And so we sin against the Lord and against his word, pouting if God doesn't live up to his end of the bargain, doubting that God would actually say, all of us are sinners deserving of judgment, and that judgment fell on his son. Proving our sinner status by our disobedience to the word and choosing to be afraid of God rather than trusting him. But rather than saying, do you understand the entirety of the word of the Lord? Can I just ask you this one question? Do you believe this word of the Lord? God saves sinners by the one he sends. In John 6, 28 and 29, Jesus, after having fed the 5,000, they chase him around the lake because they want to eat more. And they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What do we do to get on his program? There's got to be some system we can follow. Something that maybe will make you hang around some more, Jesus, and fill our stomachs. And Jesus answered them simply this. 
This is his program. This is the work of the Lord. That you believe in him who he has sent. God saves sinners by the one he sends. Jesus, who saves us from all of our fears. This morning, I preach this to you from a heart that has been fearful this week. That has been full of worries. Full of anxiety. Full of distrust. Not in its entirety, but I know most, if not all of you, know what those weeks are like. When the what-ifs seem to become the truisms, this is just what life is for you. Figure it out. So I preach this to myself and to you this morning. To those of us, all of us, whose hearts desire to rule ourselves. And so we try to figure things out to calm our, to calm our fears. To provide for our own kingdoms. We really don't want to hear the word of the Lord. To you, brothers and sisters who believe. Christ is yours. Who sing, he will hold me fast. Yet your daily life is full of fear. fear. Believe in him who he has sent. The Lord is our salvation. He has taken care of our greatest fear by his death and resurrection. Our greatest fear. There is no more fear of judgment. Perfect love casts it out. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Hallelujah. That we could say, there's no barrier between me and him anymore. Christ died and, and rose again and ascended and then sent his Holy Spirit. Not is, it that, not is it that there's no longer any barrier between us and him. There's no longer any barrier because we are in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Ponder that reality. Ben read it earlier. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's a promise. Take it to the bank. He loves you, brother and sister, in Christ. May the Spirit cast out fear. As we lay down our kingdom rights, small k kingdom rights, and the fears that our little shanty kingdoms build. And instead, let's pray to Jesus our salvation continually. That his kingdom would come. That his will would be done. See, God saves sinners by the one he sends. And Jesus who saves us, saves us from all our fears. So call to him when you're afraid. Salvation is an eternal one, yes. And it's a daily one, yes. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. 
pour out your heart before him. To you who don't believe he can fix you, you think your sin is too great. You think your rebellion against the word of the Lord has accumulated a debt you can no longer pay. You are exactly right. But there is a one who paid it. There is a one who at the cross stepped in front of the wrath that you deserve to absorb it in himself. That you too can be forgiven. That you too can be reconciled to God. That you too can be filled with the Holy Spirit and called a son or daughter. What do you got to do to do this work? Believe in the one whom he has sent. I don't have time to read the rest of the chapter 12. Read it this week. I'd encourage you. Maybe I'll lead off next week. I'll I'll just say this. Look at verses 19 through 25, and here's a little application homework. Pray it as Jesus praying for you. Father, thank you that through your Son we have security. It is your word that has promised that. It is your Son who has accomplished that. It is your Spirit who has sealed that. Even as we come to the table this morning, we ask that you would unite us in your love that you've poured out into our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.